Yellow Ladybugs respectfully operates in Warrantry country of the Kulin Nation. We would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge, recognize, and respect the traditional owners of country and their continuing connections to lands, waters, and communities. We honour this privilege and pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past and present. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome back to the Yellow Ladybugs podcast. Last year, we were so proud to offer our groundbreaking ADHD and Autistic Minds conference. Our three-day conference celebrated neurodivergent girls, women, and gender-diverse individuals, drawing from both the lived experience and expert knowledge of 45 speakers and over 3,000 attendees. In case you missed it, we're doing it all again for our Yellow Ladybugs conference 2023. In preparation for our upcoming conference, we've decided to revisit some of the key moments from last year and make them available to our community. We're doing this with the support of the Department of Education Victoria. For today's topic, we're highlighting neuroaffirming ways to support executive functioning at school. If you'd like more information on our upcoming 2023 conference, head to ylbconference2023.vfairs.com or check out the show notes. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode of the ADHD and Autistic Minds Conference Series. Hi everyone, I'm Natasha Stoheli from Yellow Ladybugs. I'm really thrilled to be bringing you this panel discussion that is all about neurodivergent approved strategies to support autistic and ADHD children and students with their executive functioning in the school setting. Whether we're talking about planning, organizing, prioritizing and completing tasks, understanding and following instructions, time perception, or the much misunderstood worlds of hyperfocus or monotropism versus autistic inertia. Executive functioning is a very big topic and one we have talked about many times before at Yellow Ladybugs. We're proud to have shared many strategies over the years intended to support autistic girls and young people with executive functioning challenges. Beyond this, we know that there is a whole industry within the education sector that is all about improving executive functioning for neurodivergent students, whether this is through gadgets, programs or training. Today, we're proud to take this conversation a step further, and that is to approach this topic from a neuroaffirming framework that is respectful of the brain differences of ADHD and autistic minds. And to help us do this, we have brought in three neurodivergent panelists who between them bring a combination of student and educator insights and of course, lived experience. So let's do some introductions. First of all, joining us is Shadia Hancock. Shadia is the proud owner and founder of Autism Actually and an ambassador for Yellow Ladybugs. They are currently studying a Bachelor of Speech Pathology with a long-term goal of specialising in AAC, autism, language development and animal-assisted therapy. Hi, Shadia. Hi, Natasha. Hi. I'd also like to introduce Gemma Duggan. Gemma is a neurodivergent person who owns an educational therapy and consulting business supporting neurodivergent children and their parents. She parents a fabulous yellow ladybug who also has ADHD and global anxiety disorder. Hi, Gemma. Hi. And finally, Rhiannon Lowry. Rhiannon is an educator and researcher who specializes in twice exceptionality and mathematics. Rhiannon has personal experience in executive functioning strategies and the difficulties of understanding and navigating the school as a, as a teacher and student. Hi, Rhiannon. 
Hi, Natasha. Hi, everyone. Hi, welcome, everyone. We're just going to get straight into this. Um, we're actually going to spend the first half of this discussion focusing on some of the most common executive functioning challenges neurodivergent young people experience at school. And we've asked our three panellists to share their strategies that are practical, but also respectful, strength-based, and ultimately neuroaffirming. We know that this is going to be so valuable for all the teachers and parents in our audience, and we're really excited to get underway. And I believe, Gemma, we've nominated you to get us started on this topic. Yes, that's right. I thought, get it out of the way and I'll go first. <laughs> um, so I have been, since um, we've been getting all the information about this conference, I've been really thinking about the strategies that I've put in place over the years in the classroom, but also most recently um, with my daughter as well. Um, and then I guess thinking about strategies for myself as well. Um, so... Uh, although that I'm not, um, I don't have ADHD or, and I'm not autistic, I do have dyslexia. And so um, executive function stuff has come, played a role for me as a dyslexic person. Um, so I just, so I was thinking about things that I have done for myself as well. Uh, so the first one that we were kind of looking at was um, inattention. And I think um, this one is really commonly missed in the classroom, um, especially with our females, um, autistic and ADHD females. I think that a lot of um, these girls go under the radar and it's not really picked up. Um, and so it can be really tricky for teachers to, um, to see it. And I think, so that I guess would be one of my first things would be if possible for educators to do some research on it. Um, because I think, like I said, that goes um, under the radar a whole lot. Um, but uh, what I've kind of I've made some notes here and kind of what I've looked at for everything, and I'm going to put this here first, um, for me as an educator, as a parent and all that, is um, relationship first and getting to know each student. Um, relationships are just the overall... Um, I think uh, what's really important for all students. Um, so getting to know your student, so that's the first thing, and building that relationship. So I'm that I think is just a there for all of all of what I'm going to be talking about. Um, so what I've also kind of put down, um, I've put down a few different things, um, and sometimes when I've been working with students, um, I've I've um, tried to identify any triggers. I'm not quite sure if that's the right word. Any times that this is happening, um, where students their attention is going. So is there a particular time of the day it's happening? Is there a particular subject that is happening? Um, so what I've done with students is I've actually um, done like data, collected data first, and I found that actually really good for the inattention. So yeah, finding out when it's happening and then you can possibly find out why it's happening. Um, and then you can have, talk with students, parents, anyone involved and um, get the buy-in and talk about why it's happening and what you can do to maybe help that. So I, 
I don't think you can really resolve it and for me until you know why it's happening and maybe when it's happening. And so then you can you can look at some things to get around um, helping the student with that. Um, so yeah, my main one for that was why and um, recognizing the distractions and what's going on. So yeah, data, data collection and then working with the student. Um, the next one I was looking at was organization and planning. And I think this is the big one that people think about when they think about executive function. They forget about the other things and people are like, oh, well, it's all about organizing and planners and all of that kind of thing. And yes, that's a big part of it. It is. So I think we, a lot of us understand things that can help us. So um, reminders, checklists, um, timers, those kinds of things um, are also really important. But again, it's what does that student need? What does that child need to help them? Because again, it's not going to be the same for everyone. So it's having those discussions. What is it that we can do to support you? Um, and what is it that you need to be successful? So um, yeah, yeah, talk to them um, and then go through, is it, like I said, is it planners? And what is it that you need help planning with? It could be things like, well, is it that you need planning with your essays and your writing? Is it that you need planning to transition um, in your day? So that's really tricky. Um, is it that you need organising um, just your, you know, your tote tray and in your desk to make things really clear for you um, so that you have everything that you need in one spot? So I've had students where we've made folders for assignments so that everything is clear in that um, folder for that assignment so that they don't need to get up and go anywhere. So everything is in there. It could include scissors and glue and all of that. It's all in one spot so that they don't need to get up and go. And I think that's part of organising as well. Also, I've found some fidgets and it depends on the fidget, but um, some fidgets work with the hyperfocus as well. Um, Again, it comes back to the relationship and finding out what works for the student because I find that fidgets do different things for different people. Um, and so I also uh, am wanting to kind of say that as well because from my experience as a teacher and as a parent, um, then <laughs> teachers have dismissed fidgets because one they're too noisy or the teacher doesn't necessarily like them but also they don't real teachers sometimes don't realize that fidgets do different things for different people um, and so it's not a fidget is a one size fits all kind of a thing and I know I've kind of taken a little bit of a tangent on that but it was really something that I was thinking about when I was looking at these strategies. Perfect perfect thank you that was brilliant and I can tell you as the parent of a nearly 13 year old I'm scribbling notes down frantically with what you're saying that was really great and two major takeaways for me were what you said the relationship comes first that is so important and ask the student and, and that comes round to the final point you made about this is not a one-size-fits-all thing. What works for one student is not going to work for another. So it's, it's about being the detective and working with the student to engage them. So thank you so much for that contribution. Shadia, we're going to jump to you next. 
So executive functioning for me is still a very much a work in process, even as an adult. Um, I guess looking back to my school days, I was definitely one of those students who would be the sort of invisible, um, inattentive type person who would zone out and I'd be asked what I learned from the class and after 10 minutes it was gone. So I think for me it was really important that there were questions about why I was tuning out, what was it about the classroom structure that meant I was getting overloaded, what regulatory supports could be put in place to help me concentrate for longer. Um, and so um, I really relate to that blurting out. I was one of those kids who blurted out all the time. And I remember saying to my mum, it's because I really, I'm worried that I'm going to forget what I want to ask. And so if I get it all out now, it means that it's there. So one thing that my teacher did was encourage me to write sticky notes as soon as I had questions. And then I would show them at the end and we'd have a debrief. I think the debrief time was really helpful for me, but it's about asking why we're doing that. Um, why, why is it that we're feeling the need, need to do that? It's not enough to just go stop doing that because there's a reason behind why we need to do that. Um, and something I've worked out and, and sort of talking to my autistic and ADHD friends is the power of movement. So I find that I really need to incorporate movement-based activities within my study schedule. Um, a, for my hyper-focusing, because I can easily hyper-focus on my area of interest for hours on end if I get to eat, drink, do all that. So I try and put in, um, so let's say half an hour and then put a reminder on my phone. And then that's a reminder either to just get up and get a drink of water or go for a walk or do a workout. Um, and that's been really helpful for me. That will obviously vary depending on the individual, but it's just trying to identify what sort of things help you boost your energy. Um, and it might look different for other people, but I just realised that, it, you know, focusing for 10 minutes, more than 10 minutes in class with just verbal instructions, it's spoken instructions, it's just not going to work for me. So um, my teachers would often do multimodal strategies like, for example, my chemistry teacher saw that I was stuck on something and I just wasn't sort of absorbing the information. And she basically went through different types of sort of um, teaching until she found one that sort of worked for me. So she would write on the board or she'd show a video. If that still didn't work and I still wasn't getting it, she'd come out with a 3D model of whatever we were doing and just said, look, just have a look at it. You know, we'll, we'll talk about it later. And I think that sort of exploratory approach of, okay, let's work together to find out what what learning learning method works best for you was really helpful and helped me engage. Um, I think for the organisation and planning side of things, um, one of the biggest things for me was figuring out how to use my computer um, because writing for me is really, really challenging. Um, not because I'm a bad writer, but it's just very difficult to organise my notes and um, then you have to try and find them. <laughs> and we all know what that's like as school students. You put it in your locker and you forget about it. So I think um, I've sort of really used things like OneNote and I've recently found this writing helper app for my university, which helps you put down ideas, mind maps, all within the one place. It helps you reference. It does all of it within the one place. So that's been really helpful for me. Um, and the great thing about OneNote is that you can control F to find things. What I often found is I wrote way too much and 
you know, had difficulty prioritising what information was important to write down in the first place. Um, another thing that I find really helpful is scheduling a day in the week just to dedicate myself to, right, let's look at my organisational system. Is it working? Do I need to tidy it up? What do I need to do to prepare for the week? Because something I find really good at is finding strategies. Something I find really difficult is initiating them and continuing those strategies, which I've read online is a very common experience for autistic and ADHDers. So um, I think being able to schedule that day to actually sit down and go, right, I need to clean up my files or I can't find this document. What what can I do? And definitely having an occupational therapist has been really helpful with that because she's able to go, right, this system hasn't worked. How about we try this instead um, and use my strengths with visual visual processing and um, you know, visual learning, so checklists, but not the typical ones, more like um, prioritisation systems. Um, but similar to what Gemma was saying, for example, writing down all the things I need to do, but looking at which ones are most important and then ticking them off as I went along. I also found that those, those sort of hourly-based um, weekly planners really didn't work for me because if I didn't do it to the hour, I'd get really anxious so I've made general things like this is what I need to do this week, but given myself the choice as to when I can do it within the week. Um, so that's been really helpful as well. Um, and I guess just being aware that not all strategies are going to work for everyone. So, for example, flowcharts, I cannot stand flowcharts. They do not work for me. I get confused as to where to look at with them, but I do like mind mapping. I like being able to write my notes down. I like being able to use whiteboards where I can actually take pictures of what I'm doing as I'm going along and rub out things if I'm not happy with it. Um, so it's just about working with the student in front of you and um, finding out what what they want to achieve, what their preferences are with learning. And um, yeah, that collaborative approach, I think is really helpful. Thank you. That's so interesting, Shadia. And I always learn so much when I listen to you. Um, just fantastic. And I think you reminded us of the importance of movement breaks, which is something we talk about with neurodivergent students around their sensory profile, needing sensory breaks, but actually the link between movement and executive functioning is a really important one. So thank you for sharing that um, engagement, finding ways to engage your brain. I loved that. So really great stuff. Um, Rhiannon, over to you. Hi, and thank you. And um, Gemma and Shadia, they were fantastic strategies. I feel kind of in a, a deficit going third, simply because lots of stuff's already been covered. Um, but the way that I like to start, um, as a classroom teacher, so I deal with 180 kids a day um, minimum, and I teach mathematics. So automatically, as soon as the kids come into my classroom, they're already in a, a mindset where they're not exactly happy to be there. Um, so my very first lesson, I normalize the fact that I have ASD and I say to my students, this is who I am. These are the things that I need you guys to do to help me regulate. And I really, really advocate with the kids about what I need from them so that then they feel empowered to advocate to me what they need from me as the classroom teacher. Um, teachers are time poor. So anything that we can do to help students um, to build into that platform of this is what I need from you saves us time in research. So I find that really, really helpful to say to our young ladybugs, tell the teacher what you need. If it's too noisy, too bright, too anything, tell them what you need and just be brave about it. Um, and then validate them when they come and tell you. Um, I think that's really super important as a teacher and as a parent. I understand you're feeling this way. 
can you can we work together on how to solve that but just make sure that they don't feel like they're in a deficit for feeling the way that they feel I think that's super important um, the way I start every lesson and I find this is really helpful and it, it's kind of spread it like wildfire around my school is I do a well-being check-in at the start of every lesson so I get the kids to rank how they're traveling in my lesson at the very minute they're sitting there. Um, from one, everything is awesome, like the Lego movie, to five, my world is ending and I should be crying in fetal position under the table right now. The kids tell me where they are on the scale and it helps me adjust my lesson plan to match the needs of all my students, not just my um, special needs or additional needs students. Uh, because I find that there's, if we say to everyone, it's okay to feel the way you feel, the students who are struggling maybe with the way that they're feeling, their well-being, their executive functioning, their emotional regulation, it normalizes for them as well. And they feel safe because everybody's sharing how they're feeling. Um, and it puts them in a position of um, not just power, but social equity in the classroom. Um, we try and use proactive languages. So um, instead of telling the students what I don't want them to do, I tell them what I do want them to do. And that really helps them with that executive functioning simply because they know exactly what's expected of them at what time. So instead of saying, don't call out, can you raise your hand up next time so I can hear everybody? Um, and that sort of conversation. And it just positions the same behaviour in that really positive and affirming um, way. So the students don't feel like they're, again, that deficit of I've been naughty, I've called out. It's, oh, I just know, I put my hand up to ask a question. Um, sorry, I've written notes, but they're not in any sort of order because that's how my brain works. Um, I like to front load my students. So I give them a week planner at the start of every week. So every single student I teach knows from the Thursday beforehand what's coming up in the following week as far as exercises, activities, excursions, whether or not I'm going to be there. Um, so I had to apologise to my beautiful class this morning because I missed them this, and they had to struggle on without me. Um, but they knew over a week ago that I was going to be missing from the classroom so that any students that felt like they needed to touch base with me digitally beforehand were able to do so. And I think I've got about three emails while we've been talking saying, help, I'm struggling with this concept. Um, we're doing algebra, so it's okay. As far as blurting out and that impulse control, uh, if I'm instructing, the kids know that I'll say my turn just so that they know that it's actually my turn to speak right now. And they know that that means that they get their turn. I do like a save it for later as well, but I get them to put it into a three minute thesis because these kids are experts. They are amazingly adept at whatever they're passionate about. I have no idea. And I don't want to bluff them and say, I know what you're talking about. Um, so I get them to do me a little three minute blog and they have to keep it to three minutes they record their little information for me. And then I get to know all the information. They've synthesized it, they've organized it, and they've been able to communicate that in a three-minute timetable, which means that um, if I've got 27 kids giving me three-minute theses, it's not overwhelming as far as my time um, constraints, because as we know, most educators are time poor. Um, I do a quiet space for regulating. So we've actually got a space, it's called under the stairs and the kids think that they're Harry Potter, um, but that works at my school. Um, and it's just a dimly lit stairwell. Um, it is open so you can see into it. So for child safety and things like that, um, but it just gives them a place to, as a refuge. Um, and there's a, a visual timer in there. So the kids can set that when they go in, they know they've got five minutes. I'll check in with them after five. If they need another five, we give it to them. So it's, uh, it's that whole idea of that advocacy, telling me what you need. If you need time out, take it. Um, something that my brain does, and I'm sure other students with ASD does, is I do tornado thinking. 
And sometimes it's like tornadoes upon tornadoes upon tornadoes. And um, my brain's got lots of things going on. I'm a mum and I've got two kids with autism. I'm a full-time researcher, full-time teacher, and life is busy. So all of those different tornadoes are going on in my head at the same time and ideas are sprouting. Um, so I write it down and I actually have it labelled in my notebook as future Rhiannon problems. So these are things that present Rhiannon doesn't have to deal with, but future Rhiannon might want to pick back up. Um, and I found that that's helpful for me just as far as getting it out of my head and that allows me to regulate. Uh, my kids in the classroom, all of them, neurodivergent and neuro um, not, sorry, my brain just lost it there. Um, we all write on time on whiteboard tables. So we get whiteboard markers and we do all of our maths on big tables in front of us. We use windows, any shiny surface they like so the students can collaborate together. And I found that's really effective with movement. You don't have to ask to leave your seat. You just grab your whiteboard marker and up to the window. Um, it also helps people like me with old eyes. Um, I can see their errors from across the room and it helps me run over and just go, oh, I think that's an error there. Let's see if we can problem solve that together. Um, but it helps my fidgeters as well because they can draw on the table in front of them with a whiteboard marker and not get in trouble. And then at the end of the lesson, they rub it out and it hasn't impacted their notes because in mathematics, symbols are important. And so it doesn't mix them up and it doesn't um, stop them from being able to go back and revise their notes. Um, but yeah, pretty much it was amazing what you guys said. Um, I absolutely believe 100% students don't learn from people they don't like. So building relationships is super important. Building that trust, making sure they know they're non-negotiables. Um, I love the sticky notes debrief. Shadia, I'm going to steal that. So thank you. Um, and giving kids a choice of tasks. So if you can, don't just always assess with tests. Don't always assess with writing. Get them to do a video. Um, get them to do a song. I've had students do congruence relationships to the tune of Moana. So um, you can do anything with the information. You just have to be flexible to meet the students where they're at. Thank you. Um, Ryan, and I think we all want you as our teacher. <laughs> that was so interesting. And a huge thank you to your class for letting us have you for this hour today. We feel really, really privileged. You've just given us so much there and the modeling and self-advocacy, all of those things, sharing your plan with the class. I love that. That's such a great idea. Um, it's, yeah, lots and lots and lots to take away there. Um, I'm feeling excited. It's really great. Um, thank you for that. Now, look, um, Shadia, I think you had something you wanted to add. And then um, Gemma or Rhiannon, if you do think of anything else around these strategies, feel free to jump in. But Shadia, um, what did you want to add? Um, well, uh, just after hearing from Rhiannon, it made me um, also recognise and thinking back on my primary school years that very typically with autistic and ADHD people, I didn't see social hierarchies. So if a teacher told me you have to do this, I go, why? What? Why do I need to do this task? Um, and if they didn't give me a reason, I didn't want to do it. So I think uh, a key thing is being able to explain as to why you're doing what you need to do, what benefit to learning is it going to have, and trying to be sort of collaborative in the approach rather than going, you have to do this, because all I go is, you know what, I don't want to be here now because I don't know why I'm doing this and it's a waste of my time. So, But if it's explained to me in a logical way, usually I'll do it because I'll realise that it's connected to my goals and what I want to achieve. Um, and I think particularly with subjects like maths where the concepts are quite abstract, 
being able to go, well, this is why we're doing it. This can be used in a variety of fields or um, just being able to connect it somehow. Um, and one thing I really loved looking at was some things like um, Fibonacci sequences and connections to nature. And so what my mum does a lot is actually incorporating those things and looking at real life examples of mathematics being applied. Um, and you might've heard of the hailstone conjecture. Mum gets really excited about it, but um, you know, I get excited about it because she's passionate about it. And I think being able to tie it into real life things and then being able to explain to the students, you know what, this task doesn't seem to have an immediate um, relevance to you, but we're doing this today. You're welcome to join in. Um, and, and this is why. So I think providing a rationale is really important because as adults, we do that too. Um, and I think the, the whole idea around co-regulation is really important. Yeah. So if the other students are not settled, I'm not going to be settled either, but then I'm more likely to have those reactions that then I'm told, why are you doing that? So I think just being aware that there could be lots of things happening under the surface that you're not seeing directly. Thank you. Um, yeah, really, really interesting there. And thank you so much for your insights. Um, now, I think we are going to move on to our next question. Um, we could keep talking about this, but I suspect some of it's going to come through in these questions anyway. So having spent all this time focusing on how to support individual students and having shared so many takeaways, um, I think we would also like to discuss what you think is the most effective thing teachers can do for the entire class in order to normalise different executive functioning abilities. And you've actually all already touched on this and what you've said, but if you want to add something specifically on this, that would be fantastic. Um, Gemma, we'll start with you again. No worries. Um, so one thing that I has popped up for me, which is crazy that I didn't actually think about it, is the advantages of using multi-sensory learning all the way through school, including through high school, um, because that, that for autistic students, students with ADHD and, and other learning disabilities such as dyslexia and, as well, this style of teaching is one that supports everybody. Everybody will learn with this. Uh, that is, and that can be included in every subject of school. So myself, I do a lot of multi-sensory learning based around language. Like that's what I do a lot with um, through Orton Gillingham with my students. However, I also now work a lot with high school and college students with multi-sensory learning for mathematics as well and other subjects too. So I think it's really worthwhile for teachers to investigate how you can use multi-sensory learning, how you can include that in your, in your classes. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on that I kind of forgot was that for students, um, what I used to do was um, well, obviously put up a, a visual timetable. Um, and, but what I also used to do in Google Classrooms was put videos of the instructions that I'd gone through for particular um, things throughout the day or particular assignments. So I used to record myself giving those instructions and reminders and I would put them up in Google Classroom for anyone to go back and look at. Um, that couple of things, that saved me from having to go and re-explain um, like re things to students. 
It also generally gave me extra time to go into more detail for those instructions, but also for the students who felt embarrassed about having to come back and ask things again, it meant they could do it at any time. And so they didn't have to feel embarrassed about not understanding. That is great. That's a really great practical example of, of something that makes it accessible for the whole class. And I saw teachers doing that during the last two years of remote learning, um, using those types of videos and things like that really effectively. So um, I think maybe that's something that a lot of teachers out there are now thinking more about how can I deliver these messages and instructions in different ways. And um, yeah, it would be really great to see that become much more normalised. So thank you for that. Um, Shadia, over to you. So I'm basically just going to echo what Gemma said, particularly about the um, out of school supports. Um, something I know that my mum does is screencast. So she will actually explain concepts, have, a, you know, like a digital whiteboard on the screen and do the problems in real time, but also recorded so the students can rewind and go back. I think for myself, my high school used a flipped learning model. And so we were given videos and content to watch before the um, class started, which meant that I wasn't having to rely on my cognitive load during class to absorb all the information. So I really played to my strengths better and I had questions I could go up to my teacher straight away and go, I'm not sure about this. Can you help me about, help me with that? Um, so I think, I think we could, the technology can be used in really productive ways, particularly as, a, as an adjunct to teaching. Um, and certainly for university, that's also been really helpful. I think regarding regulation, we all need to regulate some of us more than others, but we all benefit from regulation supports, um, particularly when you look at models like the universal design for learning. Um, I think, I think to just be able to say that, look, I need this right now. This is where my energy is at. I'm not really feeling ready to study yet. And being able to go, that's okay. We all sometimes need help to get into that mindset that you're really tired, you're not going to be as um, able to absorb information as if you're really alert. So um, I think being able to normalise that within a classroom setting, and I think teachers have a really, I think teachers can have a really powerful impact on supporting the road to self-regulation, particularly developmentally where we're at. We might not be at that point yet, but if we have that key teacher that is able to recognise when we need that additional help, I think that would go a long way. And certainly for myself, it helped me connecting the dots and reflect on myself and go, hmm, I tuned out all of that class. Maybe I can ask my teacher, you know, what 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 was what what we could do to to prevent that from happening again. Maybe it's providing slides or written notes alongside. So then if I do need to go out for 10 minutes, for example, I'm not going to miss key information. Um, and just being able to accept within myself, you know what, I I can't it takes a lot of effort to concentrate for long periods of time. And once my teachers understood that, my perspective, they were able to work with me and go, right, now I understand. Now I understand why, you know, you need certain supports put in place. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, you touched on modelling, which is so important, and co-regulation, which is going to come up again and again throughout this conference. We're huge on that. So really great insights there. Thank you, Shadia. Um, Rhiannon, over to you. All right. Uh, thanks, guys. Again, I've made notes, but I do still feel like a deficit going third. So it's a win there. Um, a couple of things that um, sort of struck me is that we do videos. Um, I think I've made videos for 14, 15 years, uh, and they're really, really helpful, like you said, for students who 
may have to slip out of the classroom for five, 10 minutes. They can catch up without feeling like they are in that sort of deficit position. Um, I think for teachers and talking to other teachers about students with um, additional supportive needs, Goal coasters are always fun. Um, and that's literally, I've got a picture on my wall of a roller coaster and each child's head sitting in a carriage and underneath is a whiteboard or a laminated sheet and they write their next goal on that. And it can be something as simple as sit in the classroom for the whole day or sit in a lesson or listen for a lesson or it could be getting an A in whatever subject they want to get a sub, um, an A in. But it's personalised for them and it's subjective. And when they achieve it, we celebrate the wins, the not quite wins yet, but you celebrate even the little ones because that's the next step in that self-regulation and co-regulation. As a teacher, your passion shows and your passion is contagious. So you're doing this for a reason. You're a teacher for a reason. So make sure people know what you're passionate about. And um, the students will pick up on that passion and they will get engaged with you and they'll buy in. I tell my kids, a kid asking me a question about mathematics is like Christmas morning for me because it's like so exciting and I just can't wait for them to show like the tiniest little bit of interest in something I love. Um, I, I agree 100% with the videos. Make sure you slow down your lessons and make sure that the students understand step by step by step. But just be careful of some of those steps. Um, I know myself, if I'm doing an instruction manual, I love Lego. Um, it's a, a vice for me uh, and definitely a time waster. But if I get to step three and I can't find that piece, it actually causes me anxiety and I can't get past that next step to go on to step four or to build to the next step. And I found that's been mirrored in my students. If I give them do step one, do step two, do step three, and they physically can't do step two. So if you think about a test or something like that and question two gets them stuck, they don't have permission in themselves to skip the question and go on. So sometimes as a teacher, be really mindful not to step all of your activities or give written permission at the top. If you get stuck on a question, skip it. You have permission. Um, I know as a, a young person with ASD, um, I kept being told that being neurodivergent was wrong and I needed to be different to be accepted. And so um, I found that really tricky because I didn't want to acknowledge to someone else that I couldn't do something because I felt it was just another way that I wasn't good enough. And so I, I see that mirrored in my students all the time. So just be careful with those steps. Um, sometimes I say to my kids, flip it for five. Um, and this is a really good one of getting out of your own head. Um, if you flip your piece of paper upside down and practice writing it upside down, so whatever you're doing, if you even 90 degrees, so turn it on a, a right angle, um, you can write upside down or sideways or backwards for five minutes and it kind of stops your brain from doing that spiral into doom. Um, and that's a really good strategy that doesn't sort of disrupt anyone around you. You're still working, but it's just you flipped your head for five minutes. Um, as a teacher, I cannot advocate any more than only talk for 15 minutes. Like, don't stand there and lecture for hours upon hours upon hours because even neurotypical kids are out of it. They're bored. Neurodivergent kids, you lost them at minute 15. So stick to 15 minutes. Um, if it's too important, make a video, um, but call the kids back in if you need to. So set it up for a 15-minute instruction, do the activity, and then call them back if you need to. And that way they can regulate what I'm working on, if it's important for me to be called back and stuff like that. Um, and breakout groups is fantastic in classrooms and online. So hopefully no more remote learning, but fingers crossed. <laughs> Brilliant points there. Thank you so much. I, yeah, lots and lots and lots to take away there again. Um, Shadia, you wanted to quickly add something? 
Oh, just Rhiannon reminded me of something super important regarding executive functioning and actually being able to speak to a friend, a dyslexic friend of mine who also has similar executive functioning issues. One of the things that really was helpful for me learning from her was actually being able to get away from the typical linear processing that's often set out with essays. I have it all in my head, but if it's set out on the page, one after another, I can't write it down. And so um, I was definitely that perfectionist who was in school going, if I don't get this draft perfect, I'm not going to write it. So it was being able to find ways around that that sort of helped me realise it was fluid, it's not set in stone, these are ideas. So things like, um, for example, as I said, using mind maps, so you're actually pulling out your ideas first. Even using tactile things like sticky notes under different sections so you could move them around and go, you know what, that doesn't work there. How do I put this here? Um, my, my dyslexic friend has it all across the house, just everywhere, um, because it helps her sequence her thoughts because uh, her mind works in a nonlinear fashion and so does mine. But that was really powerful for me because when I would start on assignments and I didn't know how to start it, I would just start writing things in. It didn't have to be perfect, but... I think realising that I needed to actually really understand it question by question rather than looking at the whole thing and then going through it was really helpful in being able to recognise that that's just a different way my brain works. A lot of the typical study skills sessions don't help me at all because they are catered towards neurotypical learners and those strategies don't work for me. So I think that's that's something really helpful. And maybe even giving, um, I know that English can be really difficult in that regard, giving example starters. So, you know, this is how you could start the essay. Sometimes that's enough for me to go, right, I can do the rest. <laughs> so I think being able to um, figure out those strategies and Gemma and Rihanna, you might better talk about that more from a teacher perspective, but as a student, that was really powerful to discover those strategies. Awesome. Thank you, Shadia. Again, you've, you've given us a really personal insight into the working of your brains, which brain which I know will will be really really helpful we're going to move on to our next question now and look we don't have to spend a lot of time on this but it's something we want to ask and give everybody an opportunity to speak kind of to the what not to do so I guess the question is are there any commonly used strategies for supporting executive functioning that you feel are not helpful or are not respectful of having a different neurology so even if you can't give an example what would be the red flags to to um to look out for so i had shadia first for that but um if you're happy to speak to that yeah so i guess for me um again i sort of think that anything that's sort of uh i guess compliance based of focusing on what we have to do i think misses the point um as i said there are reasons why we're having to do certain things in order to support ourselves um, there are certain things that we need to support our brains in order to do the things that we need to do. Um, I think some of the things that I find a bit um, that I've been asked from well-meaning people is how about I use the students' um, areas of interest as a reward for doing the work? And I went, that wouldn't work for me. Um, I think... Uh, I think there's, well, Alfie Cohen has talked a lot about the dangers of using external rewards and rewards, but I think uh, I would be more interested in looking at how can you incorporate our interests 
into the activities we're doing? How can you make the activities meaningful to what we're doing? How can we um, structure time within the session to have those chats about your interests? Um, I think for me, the thought of having to be limited in order to do a task would just make me resentful of the task itself rather than focusing on why we're doing it in the first place. Um, I think too, being able to, I see this all the time, you know, even in, in courses I'm doing where you'll have slides and it's just all written stuff and the person talked to the slides. I immediately tune out. I, I, I can't absorb all that, that, that visual, you know, vomit. Um, so I think being aware of the cognitive load, you know, that, that idea of, you know, how much information are you putting on the screen um, and the fact that we're having to then read off of the screen, and this goes for all learners, reading off of the screen, listening, and then trying to then write down information. It's quite a lot. So I like um, a mix of, for example, you know, you might have pictures that relate back to what you're talking about or putting in videos or giving time within class to do tactile-based um, activities. Something I really enjoyed doing in biology was that we'd, we'd, after about like maybe 10 minutes of explanation, my teacher was very hands-on and he'd go out and go, right, we're going to be the cell membrane. And he, we would go out and actually mimic the cell membranes and, and, and it was really fun, but also it helped me realise, oh, yes, this is what we've revised. It was using a different modality to consolidate the information that we learned, but Classes where I had to sit the whole period um, didn't work for me. I need lots of different types of sensory inputs to be able to connect the dots. Um, and I think all students benefit from it. All students find it fun and engaging when it's dynamic and you get to do lots of different activities. So many good points. And honestly, we could talk about all of this stuff like way, way more. Unfortunately, we don't have time today, but it's all there. It's flagged. I love it. So, um, Rhiannon, we're going to let you speak not last. How's that? <laughs> um, so, uh, Shadia, I wish I had you in my class. I reckon we could rock the Casbah. It would be incredible to just play. Um, I guess the red flags for me are that there's just two that really spring to mind um, and that's teachers who say that I have an autistic student in my class therefore I can fix autism or ADHD that one size fits all model doesn't work um, and it just grinds my gears like oh my gosh I just want to sort of slap them with a textbook um, because every student if you know one person with autism you know one person with autism you don't know every person with autism um, and it has to be reflective of the student and that learner and it can change year to year as they mature and grow. I've taught students from year five to year 10. I had that privilege of teaching them every single year for five years. And it was incredible because I watched them grow, not just as learners, but their needs changed and their um, ability to regulate changed. So you can't even say, I've taught this student once, this is what works. You have to actually keep talking to them and saying, what works now? What works in this lesson? How can I support you? Um, and so that closed mindset of that one size fits all model doesn't work at all. Um, the other one that really annoys me and is a huge red flag is the consequences thing. If a student has a tick that's irritating to the teacher, they give them consequences and say, you know, you need to stay in at lunch and catch up on the work that you missed. Or, um, you know, like if they're removed from the classroom because they need to regulate, you have to catch up with me after school or lunchtime. It's like a detention. And I remind teachers all the time that you wouldn't consequence a student who's asthmatic who took their Ventolin. 
you wouldn't consequence a student who's epileptic and needed to have a, a seizure because that's what their body was doing. Be considerate and be understanding. Neurodivergence is not a choice. It's not a choice to behaviour. It's this is what we need to do to regulate. Um, and there shouldn't be consequences or penalties for that. We should actually support the student through. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> all of that. Absolutely all of that. Wonderful. Um, yep, yep, yep. I can't add anything to that. Um, but I'm going to see if Gemma wants to add anything to that. <laughs> Very similar to what Rhiannon has said, pet peeve is to fix. So I've had I've had teachers, both about my daughter and, and other students that um, I've been teaching, say that's okay by the end of the year, they won't be doing this particular behaviour or something like that. Like to me, that is a huge red flag and it makes me so sad for um, the child and the teacher. So I guess it's for us as teachers to realise that we don't have to fix anything. It's um, working with the students to make everyone successful. That's, that's really it. So, Absolutely, yeah, so much. And I think, you know, for any teachers who are watching, for parents who want to take this to their teacher, it's, it's just those simple things. It's, you know, asking yourself as a teacher, how can I be an ally to my neurodivergent students? And we've, we've covered this today. Talk to them, ask them. Shadi, you put in the chat, student voice, you know, it's, it's did this help you? It's, it's, an, it's a conversation, it's engagement, it's relationship. Um, these are the things that really, really matter. So really, really thrilled to have all three of you reinforce these points um, so wonderfully. So we are going to finish up now with one last question. And... That is to look at the link between supporting someone who does have executive functioning challenges and their self-esteem and why this is so important. Um, we've talked previously in other panels about the feelings of failure and I'm trying so hard. Why does any, anybody realise how hard I'm trying? So, Rhiannon, we're going to let you go first for this one. Um, I guess it's kind of what I was saying before about that fact that um, as someone who was neurodivergent from a very young age, I was always told I was naughty, um, always in detention, always on suspension, um, simply because I couldn't contain all of this in any form. Um, my regulation needs were way too high for my classroom. Um, and it made me feel less. It always made me feel less. And even today, as a successful grown-up and human person, I still feel less when I'm talking to my peers sometimes because I'm like, oh, do normal people think that way? Um, I almost feel like they feel less or should feel less because like they don't have an amazing brain like we have. Um, but it's like um, that whole idea that if, if I can just do this right, it makes me a better person. And I think we need to stop telling young girls to do that. Like that whole idea that you are right the way you are you need a little bit of extra structure, a little bit of extra support to be able to um, achieve your dreams and your goals, but you don't have to change who you are to be successful. Um, you are perfect. You are wonderful. Um, I think that executive functioning and self-esteem is so important. We just have to love on these kids in a child safe way, but love on them and say, you are right the way you are. You are great the way you are. I love how you think like that. It's different to everyone else, but it doesn't make it wrong. That is a beautiful answer, and all I can say to that is thank you. And um, if everyone did, if everyone did the same, the outcome would always be the same. And we don't want a world where the outcome's always the same. So, change, innovation, celebration, difference—just love that. Thank you so much, Rhiannon. Gemma, over to you. 
Um, so I just wanted to say that um, as teachers, I think part of our role is to mentor and support these students. And so I think as teachers, what we should be doing is to find ways for our students to feel successful and what works for them. And that's okay if it's not something that works for everyone. Um, so be able to be having those conversations with students and to be able to encourage them to advocate for themselves, to tell you what they need. Um, and also find what they need to feel successful. So I think that would that would be my point is that um, that's also our role. So our role is not just subject based. Our role is to help the students feel successful. I love that. Find what will make them feel successful. And success is such an empowering important part of self-esteem so I love that thank you so much we'll move to Shadia now and let you finish with this point um I guess coming from the fact that I guess I'm what you consider twice exceptional one of the biggest biggest challenges for me was acknowledging that it's okay to be okay about challenges there's still a lot of stigma around admitting that you struggle with things and um, as an adult, it's been really empowering to go, you know what, I need additional help for this, but that's okay. And I think being in a household where actually our normal is being neurodivergent, we often have jokes about, that's so strange that neurotypicals do it like that. Like, why do they do that? And realising that it's just a different way of normal for us and that's okay. We're all different. We all have our different perspectives of the world, our own goals. I think having role models in the form of, you know, teachers, people in our careers of interest and realising that what you, that yes, there are often struggles that come along the way, but look at what they have achieved in their life, I think can be really helpful. And for me being able to know, yes, I have mentors who have gone through similar things to me. It's not just me. It's not because I'm failing at life. It's just it's the way my brain works as a neurodivergent person and my experience is not isolated. Um, I think being able to realise that um, it's maybe I can't or I can't or not yet as opposed to won't, I think for teachers, I think is important the fact that you have to meet us where we're at, whether it's cognitively, regulatory, developmentally, um, see that as, as being able to sort of investigate further the why. why. Why is it that we need additional support now? How can we work with the student to help us succeed in the classroom and life? Um, so that's my biggest biggest takeaway, yeah. Awesome, yeah. I think meet us where we're at. It's not that we won't, it's we can't, it's not yet. Really great advice. And Shadia, I think you're a shining example of someone who's had mentorship and support throughout your education. And you are now giving that back as well. So what a what a wonderful way to end this panel. I just want to say thank you so much to all three of you. Shadia, Gemma, Rhiannon, it's been really, really fun for me to have this conversation. And I know there's going to be so much for all our audience of teachers and parents and schools and professionals. Um, it's really, really exciting to be sharing this. Hello, my name is Summer Farrelly. Uh, so I do a workshop um, for students and teachers. And what works for me is an individualized support pro uh, profile that's part of it. If you use my resources, I ask that I'm acknowledged for my work and creations. Thank you. A quick disclaimer. This presentation is from my personal perspective as an autistic individual. 
My own personal experiences and perspectives are not a representation of all autistic experiences. So I speak to the students about um, developing an understanding of their needs within the classroom and how to advocate for that. And I talk to the teachers about how best to actually support those students. So the next few slides are based on my personal classroom needs, which will differ through everybody. So uh, my triggers are things like change without warning, uncomfortable clothing, not being able to finish tasks, yelling and angry voices, and feeling misunderstood. And then there's the types of learning, the learning styles. So there's visual learners, which learn through pictures and images. Tactile and kinesthetic learners, which learn through physically doing or drawing or writing out words. And then there's also auditory and verbal learners. They might learn through saying words back or listening. Then there's social and solidarity learning, so learning in a group and, well, self-explanatory learning alone. And there's karma. So personally, things that calm me down are fidgets, taking a short walk or rest, having time to refocus, and reading. My strengths, which don't have to be academic on this list, being a good sibling, working with numbers, connecting with animals, and being responsible. And challenges, things like spelling, group work, overthinking situations, and slow processing. And there's negotiations and boundary sections. So, for example, a negotiation is I can finish my work in my own time as long as I finish it before next lesson, whether that's doing it during lunchtime or taking it home to complete it. And 100% student input in things like this isn't, isn't what teachers think it is. It's about empowering and it's about self-advocacy and it's about the student actually learning about themselves. The ne negotiation would be written and agreed upon by everybody. And that's signed off even. So that makes sure everybody's actually on the same page, even like a relief teacher who's only in for a day. And it's providing a constant across teaching and the expectations. More examples are I can signal to my teacher districtly to indicate that I'm starting to feel overwhelmed, whether that's just a small hand signal. And if the teacher nods, I can, for example, leave the room to get a drink. And then the card can be set out something like this or however you prefer to. Thank you for listening and I hope you learned something. Bye.